Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is meet the champion. Hello, welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I'm one of your hosts, Danny Vincent. And I'm Sarah. I don't have a witty remark to make. I did, but I'm not going to say it because it's a little bit inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Now they're just imagining something even worse. I'm Kayla Bunn. I'm sure it'll come up in the episode. I'm sure I'll say it at some point. This week, we're discussing a new decade. 1950, the 23rd Academy Awards. I understand that technically it is not a new decade because the decade begins in the first year of the decade, not the zero year, but it's okay. Everyone would refer to this as the 50s. The movie with the most nominations actually broke the record for most nominations ever this year with 14 nominations. That's all about Eve. It won six of these nominations. It won Best Picture, Best Director for Mank. I refuse to say his full name. Uh, Best Supporting Actor for George Sanders. Best Screenplay, Best Sound Recording, and Best Costume Design Black and White. With 11 nominations was Sunset Boulevard. It won three of these. It won Story and Screenplay, it won Scoring of a Drama or Comedy, and it won Best Art Direction for a Black and White Film. With five nominations, there were two films. One of them was Samson Delilah, which won two of them, Art Direction in Color and Costume Design in Color. Then Born Yesterday had five nominations. It won Best Actress for Judy Holliday. Then there were two films that had four nominations. One of them was Annie Get Your Gun, which won one nomination. It won Best Score for a Musical Film. Then another film that had four nominations and no wins was John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. Sarah, what was The Asphalt Jungle nominated for? Um, yeah, so The Asphalt, nomina- the Asphalt Jungle was nominated for uh, Best Director for John Huston, who lost to... Uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. Um, Houston won for writing and directing uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and was nominated 12 more times for writing and directing. Um, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Sam Jaffe, who lost to George Sanders in All About Eve. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ben Maddow and John Houston, who lost to Mank for All About Eve. And Best Cinematography Black and White for Harold Rossin, who lost to Robert Krasker for The Third Man. And Rossin was nominated three more times and won an honorary award for The Garden of Allah. Mr. Caleb, do you have historical context? I do. Uh, Starting out in the 1950s, you see a lot of the same threads carried over from the 40s. So still a lot of suspicion about communism spreading through America and the rest of the world. You can also kind of see new, the new borders uh, starting to solidify from the end of World War II, uh, and the Korean War began. However, the thing that I think most directly uh, affects how people may have viewed this film in 1950 was that this is a film about a heist, and uh, just a few months before, one of the most infamous heists of this period of time happened in Uh, Boston, Massachusetts, the Great Brinks robbery, where some masked assailants wearing uh, some rather creepy Halloween masks uh, stole around $2.7 million, which for the time would have been $31 million, or 
our equivalent of $31 million. Um, and so the investigation would uh, be going on. This probably would have still been talking about the, being talked about in the media when this film came out. Now, the uh, suspects would not be caught until 1956 um, when one of them decided to rat everyone else out, um, which also kind of has parallels to this film, but, uh, you know, just a big kind of dramatic event happens in real life. And then purely coincidentally, a movie comes out that kind of reflects it probably would have, uh, would have had some real world, uh, uh, applicability. Well, I have sad news for you about this ceremony. Oh no. Sunset Boulevard became the second film with nominations in every acting category, not to win a single one. Now tell me, do you think this is a better film or without seeing Sunset Boulevard? Maybe you've seen it. I haven't. I have seen it. Well, is it better than My Man Godfrey? Because that was the first one. Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know. <laughs> it's. I would say, think about how, you know, it didn't win anything, but think about, like, how famous it is now. I think it uh, probably I, ended up being okay. I mean, I don't know. The Asphalt Jungle is in the National Film Registry somehow. So, <laughs> spoiler for my thoughts there. Uh, but the other interesting thing is that All About Eve was the second film to receive five na- acting nominations after Mrs. Miniver. Um, it's the first to receive multiple nominations in two acting categories, and it is the only film to receive four acting nominations for female actors. None of them won, though. That's the only interesting stuff about the ceremony here. Other than, of course, um, I think it's cool that Gerald McBoing Boing won Best Short Film. Well, I actually have something. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so Jose Ferrier, oh, yeah. who won for Cyrano de Bergiac, was the first person of color to win in a main acting category. Nice. What uh, what character, do you know what character he played? Cyrano, Cyrano de Bergiac. <laughs> Ooh. And Cyrano de Bergiac. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was, you know, there are multiple characters there, so I wasn't <laughs> sure. I think Cyrano is pretty clearly the main character of pretty much any interpretation of Cyrano. At least the main male character. <laughs> Just say. Oh, did you say, did you say m- male? Char- oh, well, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah. I was, I was being dumb this was a very this was a pretty iconic year you have all about eve you have sunset boulevard you have harvey uh you have born yesterday father of the bride adam's rib lots of really big movies this year yeah and then you and got, one of those is asphalt jungle did we did you say harvey also yeah i think harvey's a good one sorry i'm tired and also the lawnmower just started outside, and I'm really worried Mike's picking it up. Uh, I mean, I can definitely hear it. <laughs> well, now that I've acknowledged it, it's okay that it's there. <laughs> um, all right, the asphalt jungle. What do you guys think? I liked it, and I think I'm the only one here who did. Um, it's nothing special. However, it is still, I think, a pretty entertaining heist movie with a lot of different threads that are being pulled on. 
I like a lot of the performances in here with a couple, mainly one notable exception, which we'll talk about probably. Um, but I like how they play out the heist. I like how things go south. Um, and I think John Houston has a pretty good, you know, he has this kind of thing where in all his movies, except for, I guess, Annie, uh, the characters do not get what they want, but he always uh, has a different perspective on what that means for them. Uh, there is one scene that almost ruins the film for me, which I'm sure we will talk about. <laughs> I think that's the scene that I texted you or said to you yesterday when we talked that I was pretty sure we were going to discuss. Uh. I, I didn't dislike it necessarily. I just feel like these movies are all kind of blending together. I just feel like we, we had, you know, double indemnity, which was just goofy. We had the killers, which was good. And we have this, which is like into the, the neo realism side of, you know, heist and noir. And I just, didn't find it to be anything special. It which is which is was worse for you? All the class comedies that we watched in the 30s or all these crime noir films? I mean, I just I think they're cut from the same cloth. I think when you see one, you kind of see them all. And the one that's the, you know, the most exceptional is the one that sticks with you and you're like, "Hey, this is a pretty good movie." But this one, I just, it just felt like a cheap copy to me. Well, first, I want to acknowledge one thing you said, which is, uh, I don't know about you guys, but as soon as they said, I don't even remember the context, but they're like, should we talk to an insurance guy? I immediately was like, oh no, insurance is coming into the plot. Not again. But um, actually, I think it's interesting you compare this to the, because this is, I guess, a noir film, but I never thought of it like that. As soon as it started, I realized, oh, this is like, and I don't think ever you've seen this movie, Rafifi, which is a French film that comes out about five years after this. Um, Rafifi, I saw, I think last year at the Music Box, where they were doing a series of heist films. Uh, and I saw Ocean's Eleven as well, way better. And I don't really like Rafifi. Uh, okay, let me rephrase. I, le- I think Rafifi is very well crafted. And I think the back half of Rafifi is very good. The back half of Rafifi being, of course, where, like, you know, they it's kind of like this movie where, like, the heist happens halfway through and the back half is everything falling apart. Um, and I really like the back half of Rafifi. Um, and all, both the movies, Rafifi and Asphalt Jungle, don't really care about the characters. They, um, they just kind of uh, use the plot machinations to tell you the story. Um, and I thought, not to do too much comparative criticism, especially with a movie that you guys haven't seen, but I thought Rafifi was way more engaging. Uh, I was really, again, I was like, oh, maybe I'm getting into this after the heist. But it was really just that scene in the room where one of them gets shot that I was like, oh, okay, this is exciting. But then I just kind of lost interest again. Because I think, I think also the key difference here to me is if you posited that question to me, Caleb, I think I actually generally prefer the class comedies. Because they usually have at least one good performer in there that sticks out that I find really engaging. Mm-hmm. Whereas these noir, noir films, they ever have a good main cast, or like what like they ever have one good of the main three principles, or they're just garbage. And this one to me, the issue was is that I wasn't into any of the actors, I wasn't into any of the characters. And that's why the whole thing kind of fell apart to me. 
You know, it's interesting. I just looked this up uh, because you were talking about Rafifi and this. Um, there is more than uh, the 1950s had more than twice the amount of heist films than the 1940s had. And I wonder if part of what we're seeing with you comparing this to Rafifi um, is a uh, the development of the genre. Because I think when I think of heist movies, I think a lot of the 60s because you have a lot of good heist movies there, like The Italian Job and Thomas Crown Affair. And Ocean's Eleven, the original. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. So. But I think, I wonder if part of your problem here, or just a interesting point, is you're seeing kind of the development of some tropes. Potentially, yes. The thing is also, is I th- when you think about a good heist movie, and by a good heist movie, I'll just go to what I think most of our generation consider the gold standard, Ocean's Eleven. Um, is that Ocean's Eleven, heist is fun, but what's more important is the characters, or at least the star charisma, I guess, in Ocean's Eleven more so. Because no one, people know Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan, but they think of the movies as, oh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt, right? And you need that star charisma here. And I don't know who any of these people are, really. I think I know who James Whitmore is, vaguely. And, of course, I know one of the actresses who pops up very briefly, who I'm sure we'll talk about in this episode. I don't need to bring her up now, because I'm sure she'll come up naturally. Um, But the main characters are all just kind of wooden, at least to me. So, And the one most interesting one... It's the one who's nominated, and even he's just kind of whatever in it. He's clearly, to me, I feel like he's nominated. I'm about to say something that I might sound really. No, he's American. Uh, is dialect? I feel like it's the main reason he got nominated because it's a really good dialect. Um, Sam you're Jaffe. About Sam Jaffe. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But anyway, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> you liked it, Caleb, so you have to lead this time. That's the, that's the rules. If you if you're the one person who likes the movie, you have to lead the conversation. <laughs> So the Asphalt Jungle has three threads at the beginning, and eventually it ties them all together, but it takes a little bit of time. One is the story of, uh, in the one we start out with, is the story of this cop who's kind of a crooked detective, and he kind of represents the entire uh, police force uh, of this city, and he, you know, is, uh, you know, he's crooked. He's being bought off by this bookie and stuff like that. But very willing to kind of throw him under the bus if the tides turn. Then you have uh, Dix, who's played by Sterling Hayden. He is a kind of a washed up rancher from Kentucky who, after losing the farm, has come here and is in a little bit of trouble betting the ponies. Um, And he ends up being kind of the muscle of our group. And then Sam Jaffe's character is a legendary uh, bank robber who has left prison shortly, and he is um, trying to finance a job, uh, a diamond heist, and goes to a kind of crooked lawyer who he thinks can put up the money. But it turns out that that crooked lawyer is broke, and so he is planning on double-crossing them. Um, And so after the initial heist, it becomes a kind of a power struggle between Doc, which is uh, Sam Jaffe's character, Doc and this lawyer, um, while Dix is backing up Doc and kind of being the, uh, I would say, being more the everyman character. And then, of course, the police are bearing down on them. 
And that's the movie. The story of Dix Handley and his friends. Dix 11. Dix 11. There's really only four, right? Four people in the heist, so. Dix four. <laughs> Dix four jewels. <laughs> Wait, they weren't even heisting jewels, were they? I don't know why I said that. In this oh, movie? Yeah, they were jewels. Good. I'll tell you what stuck out of this movie to me. I'll, I'll just cut to the chase. There are two scenes that I really remember. One of them is, is when the guy goes, when I see a cat, I run him over. That really stood out to me. <laughs> the other scene is the one I alluded to earlier, where I was like, this happens right after the heist. Uh, and they go to the house, and there's like a, a bit of a standoff with their guns. Those are the two scenes that I was like, this is really exciting. The rest of it, I was really just... <sighs> Bye, you know? Sorry, listeners. This is going to be one of the episodes where Danny's just like... I don't even know what we're talking about. Like, there were these people, they stole stuff. This is a classic film somehow. At the beginning, I would say there's a lot of ambiance to the city. And there's, like, a lot of personality. Oh, wait, actually, there's a third scene, I remember, but we will get to that third scene because we've already alluded to it and we're keeping it for the end, I think. Sorry, (laughs) go on. (laughs) And I do like, at the beginning, how corrupt, not only corrupt this main cop is, but also how you can, he's, he is corrupt in the sense that he's being bought off and he's just kind of letting criminals go. But it does begin with the scene where he is trying to get Dix caught because Dix isn't one of the people paying him off. Um, and it comes into one of these things where he's using, he's basically trying to force an identification from this witness and he goes to his boss and his boss is like, why aren't you, why didn't you get the conviction? And he's like, well, the guy won't talk. He's like, well, throw the witness in prison then. And it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, this whole system is just rotten to the core and all the pressure is coming from the gre- from the top down, which is not what you get by the end of the film. But I yes. found that interesting. Yeah. Um, any critique of the system, I'd say this movie has is negated by the ending of the film. There's only a few bad cops. It's not every cop who's corrupt. It's not the system. It's just a few bad apples. Yeah. You it's take just 19, wild. You 20 cops in a room. 19 of them are going to be the best man you ever know. It's just wild that <laughs> the police commissioner is just openly being like, yeah, hold a witness. <laughs> Don't hold a suspect. Hold a witness. <laughs> hold the guy who got robbed. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I'm so I'm gonna apologize more to the listeners. Is that I really don't know what to say about this movie. It was like I watched it. I stared straight at it for two hours, and nothing stuck with me, over the Marilyn Monroe, and that's because, again, I don't think any of these characters are interesting remotely. I think it's over plotted because it's trying to be clever. But since it's so overplotted, I can't remember any of the plot. And it's just, I'm sorry, National Film Registry, but why don't you get a good movie like Stuart Little 2 in there? Or something like that. A movie that I can actually remember. I was just saying a movie that was on the top of my head because I'm going to watch it later today, probably. Well, you need to watch it if you remember it, Danny. Because <laughs> I need be, to really should adjust. should be in your mind all the time. I need, to, <laughs> I need to critically assess the performance of Michael J. Fox in that film. Uh <laughs> well it makes sense why you don't like the majority of these movies if you're constantly comparing them to a Simac masterpiece like Stuart <laughs> Little 2 I like 
most. I, what was last week? What were we talked about last week? Didn't I like it? Comes to the stable. No, it was comes to the stable. And that was. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't like that one either. But like, I don't know. Like, I was hoping this one was going to be good because I said I saw it was great, and I thought this was because I feel like the thing to compare this to to me in reaction is Morocco. But I liked Morocco more because Morocco had Marlene Dietrich. I think we got tricked because I feel like you you open you know you you open HBO Max and you you start the movie up and it's just this crisp clean image. Yes, looks that's like true. it could have like been we watched so it, much bad quality movies. <laughs> it looks like it could have been filmed, you know, today, and it just it's just the same, just like just dragging, just not interesting. No character is interesting. And it's just like, I don't know. I just, I wish that there was at least one character that I was like, yeah, this character's pretty cool. I mean, maybe like one of the horses, but like, (laughs) (laughs) I just don't, like, no character was like interesting to me. And it just, and I would argue that no performances were even interesting to me. Yeah, I would agree. I think, as I said, I think Sam Jeff got his nomination because of the dialect being really good. Like, it is a good dialect. I was impressed. Like, was it quality? I will disagree with you there because there are a lot of characters who I just like the performance they're putting in, and I'll admit there isn't that much interesting going on. Um, But the one character I would argue does have a lot of depth and is very interesting is Doc. Um, And I think a lot of that comes from the performance. But I feel like the way he works people is really interesting. And I think has a lot of complexity that reminded me of the treasure of the Sierra Madre and how some of those characters are working each other in that, especially near the end when he's trying to escape and he's talking the, he's talking this cat taxi driver into driving him to Cleveland. And it's one of those things where you realize this man who's been doing this criminal stuff for so long. And he explicitly says he won't ever carry a gun. That he's like, he's found a million other ways around, like, to get his way. Um, and he's just a really good judge of character, down to the thing where he knows that the lawyer is going to backstab them, like, almost immediately. But he's so, like, he's just, he's greedy and he's indulgent. And that's ultimately not only what gets him backstabbed, but what gets him caught. Because he he waits too long at a diner, leering at a teenage girl, and that's what gets him caught by the cops. If he had left five minutes earlier, he would have been in the clear. Yeah, that scene of him in the car actually does stick out, too. I keep saying, like, there's only this scene that sticks out to me. Then you mentioned something like, oh, I know I remember that. But, like, the scene in the car really did, like, the way he smooth talks to the cab driver. And it's like, for $50, I'll drive you anywhere, type of thing. Uh, yeah. I, I get what you're saying, Caleb. It's just, I just was not entranced by it, you know? Uh, although, since you mentioned leering at a woman, I want to read this uh, note on the Wikipedia page about the casting of a certain character. <laughs> this is Danny's Wikipedia corner. Houston's first choice for the role played by Marilyn Monroe was Lola Albright, who was not available. Houston brought in Monroe for a screen test and rehearsed it with her in his office. He wasn't convinced she was right for the part, and as such dismissed her. However, he changed his mind when he watched her leave the room. Houston said, She's one of the few actresses that can make an entrance by leaving the room. 
I think this is a very Marilyn Monroe role, which, I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about with Miss Norma Jean, but, you know, I mean, she plays a mistress, she plays a younger woman with an older man. Um, I would say this was not necessarily her star-making role, but it was definitely like a breakout for her, obviously getting the attention of someone like John Houston. She personally liked the role. She said it was one of her favorite roles that she's ever done. Um, it just felt like it just made me uncomfy. I don't know. It just I have a lot of feelings about Marilyn Monroe. I have a lot of feelings about how she was treated in Hollywood, and I just feel like this is we're witnessing the beginning of something far greater. And it's it's kind of interesting to look at in terms of like the impact that this role could potentially have on her career. But it's just like. This is gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she plays, she plays the mistress of the of the liar, and is in two scenes, and it's one of those things where she gives a false alibi, and so at the end, she's kind of the cops force her into giving a giving her giving an accurate uh, testimony of what happened. I do think she's very good with the absolutely nothing she's given. And Norma Jean was very intelligent, which did not come across in a lot of her like bigger roles, um, like Seven Year Itch or oh shoot, what's the Howard Hawks musical? Gentlemen prefer blondes. Yeah, gentlemen prefer blondes. So I wonder if I wonder if that's why she liked this character because she could. This feels like she's not giving anything to do, so she's putting a lot into it. I don't know. She wasn't in a lot, but as soon as she appeared, I was like, oh, there's Marilyn Monroe. Because that's what being an icon is like. I mean, they used, I mean, if you look at HBO Max, I mean, she's on the poster and like they used her, you know, not, not even a few years later to advertise the movie. So. How did I not recognize this actress, Jean Hagen? You guys know who Jean Hagen is, right? I mean, I know the name. She plays Lena Lamont in Singing in the Rain. Oh, I did see that. Oh, yeah, like, like one of the most memorable parts of that movie. Easy to me, at least. Having oh, yeah, seen no, that movie like two decades ago, so Lena wow. Lamont is uh, the hero of that movie, in my opinion. There was actually a scene with Gene Hagen that really stood out to me, and just in the sense I haven't seen it in an old movie, and that's a scene where she takes off one of her eyelashes. I don't know why. Like, well, no, I'm just saying. Like, you don't. I don't usually see that in a movie, especially like in the 1950s. Sarah's laughing at me, not audibly. Well, it's just, it's just, it's such a bizarre. Like, I don't know if it was meant to be comedic or if it was just like meant to be kind of ugly. I think the entire, I think the purpose of the movie was to be ugly. Like, they wanted everybody to be ugly. They wanted the environment to be ugly. So, for me, I thought it was kind of funny, but I think the point was that it was like her. Being a little bit, being a little bit nasty. There is, so we have, we have talked, there is not many women in this movie, unsurprisingly, um, because it is a John Houston movie, but uh, we've talked about two of them. The third one I'd say who has any bearing is the wife of the box man in the heist uh, who gets shot um, and ends up dying um, because they aren't able to take him to the hospital to get taken care of. And she has this very interesting scene with the getaway driver who's been kind of throughout the movie and is kind of a, as far as criminals go, a stand-up guy. It felt like a very human scene 
with the two of them talking and she's getting mad at him and blaming him for everything and um, being a little bit ableist about it. But it's just like, it's one of those scenes where I feel like maybe because she's only allowed to be in one scene of the movie, she feels more real than any of the other female characters. Uh, Do we want to talk about the scene that we keep alluding to? Sure. This scene Sarah kind of went into a bit. Is it? But is it the yeah. same scene? The beginning scene? No. Is that the scene you want to talk about? What scene am I talking about? Well, you talked about it already. We just kind of glossed over because we said we were going to come back to it. And that's the scene at the end with the police officer going like, "I'm going to make you listen to all these police scanners." Oh, and that's you're not. Gonna re- I was talking about the part at the very beginning when he goes, "Don't phone me." <laughs> <laughs> That is a more fun scene to talk about. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess we could talk about the. Yeah, okay. So I'll talk about the. I'll talk about the police scene. Okay. So they're talking about how they caught everybody, and the only one left is Dix. And he's like, the the police guy is like, you know, yeah, we had a few cops who were corrupt, but we caught them. And this is a very like code movie, right? Like. They all needed yeah. to be caught. They all needed to be killed. Nobody could get away. Crime could not pay. So they, they're they like, the cop's like, we're going to get this guy. He's a, he's the worst of them all. He's a ruthless killer. Um, and then he does like, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what the purpose of this is. So then he plays like the dispatch radio for everybody. And it's like, he's just like cycling through it. And he's like, all these people getting killed and raped. We're going to catch them all. Um, which like, otherwise you're just gonna do it. Like stop, stop playing on the radio. (laughs) I thought it was. I don't know. I thought it was dumb. I think I'm not trying to get too deep into this, but I think today's current climate really has made me kind of disillusioned with the uh, the good cop storyline. So of course, the system's broken, Uh, and the idea, the fact that this movie stops at the end and just goes. You know, everything would be way worse if we didn't have cops. So it's very thin blue line. Yeah. Which, I mean, okay, it's super preachy. It's very code. It's obvious that like this is put in here as the message. But it's realistic in the sense that a cop would definitely say that. What the irony though is that that cop is corrupt. Like every single cop we have seen is ineffectual and corrupt. So it's like, yeah, I believe he would say that, but I don't believe that he's right. And that's what the movie wants me to believe. And it's it's just such a weird tonal shift. I think yeah. if we look at it, if we try to look at it as objectively as possible, I think the issue is that they don't, they haven't shown us any good cops up to this point. Like this guy is supposed to be the good cop, but it's like for me as an audience member, I've seen you know, all these corrupt cops. And it's like, what makes this guy any different besides the fact that he's talking about how he's different to me, you know, maybe at the time, if I'm, you know, in 1950, I'm like, yeah, you know, cops are good. But for me now, it doesn't really work because it's like, I think it's just a basic principle of storytelling where it's like, you have, you know, the rule so far has been this and now it's this. And it just, the tone just does not match. Also, who cares about the cops in this story? They're there to like be a threat. I care about the the bank robbers. I want to see their story resolved. I don't want to spend 
you know, a whole scene with this police commissioner. And the thing is, is like the cops don't even get him. Like <laughs> they don't. Yeah, Dix gets dead. away. Horses get. He him. dies, but you know. Also, that scene ends with the with the police officer being like, "We only have one of them left, and this one is so like ruthless. He doesn't even care about people." But he he does he's the most human and like the most normal of all the of all the bank robbers i think he's the not point, like psychotic at all i think the, the point is to show that this crime regardless of what his intentions were regardless of what type of person he was i think the point is to show that crime will make you corrupt no matter what this movie created a tv show that was also titled the asphalt jungle it ran for 13 episodes. So you know it was really popular if it ran for 13 episodes. The it was seems like it was an anthology show type one well, no, it was like a crime procedural about the NYPD and how great they are. This doesn't even take place in New York. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh it's what happened so in the show. <laughs> yeah, this very blatantly takes place in the Midwest. So the show takes place in New York. And there's an episode called The Professor, which is the direct sequel to the movie. More interesting to me is that this was remade into three separate movies. One of them was a Western called The Badlanders. One of them was a shot-by-shot remake that's set in Cairo that is titled Cairo. Then there's a black exploitation remake called Cool Breeze. I'm interested in the black exploitation one. All of those sound fun. Cairo sounds fun. It's literally a shot-by-shot remake. The other interesting thing I saw on Wikipedia is that this was part of a lawsuit about film colorization, and if you're allowed to show those on television, if the hairs of the estate of the director don't approve. I mean, the obvious answer should be no. The French TV wanted to air it on color that Turner Entertainment agreed with. John Houston said no, this is against his artistic vision, and as such, because of the injunction, the show, the movie was aired from, prohibited from being broadcast at all in France, uh, on appeal, the television channel one broadcasting the film in 1989, a year after the lawsuit was filed. However, eventually the court of cassation, which is one of the four courts of last resort in France, uh, canceled that judgment saying that colorizing the film had transformed the artwork enough to transgress the author's moral rights. So you cannot air the film in colored syndication in France. Interesting. Yeah. They should make a movie about that. Uh, I don't think that would be sure interesting at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, be, I'd watch it. More than this. Alright. Do we have anything else we want to say about this? I'm sorry, listeners. I know this is a... At least for me, I know I'm, I'm bad this episode. I think I'm tired, too. I think this is... We're recording this at 2 a.m. in the morning, basically. So, uh, Yeah. You know, By that, you mean 2 p.m. in the afternoon? I woke up pretty recently, so it's 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think so, we, yeah. should do like a, we should do a compilation of like all the times when we do an episode, and then Danny goes, I'm sorry. Yeah. He says it a lot. <laughs> we really should just at one point just put out an episode. It's like, we missed this week. Here's Danny saying he's sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just hard. Anyway. I like the horses. I thought they were cool. They were cool horses. I'll give the horses. They, they were like, real. They, I look like they're gonna eat him. They were like, oh, oh. <laughs> oh. I actually remembered something I wanted to mention. Uh, this won the Volpe Cup at Venice. 
for Sam Jaff as the best actor of the year at the Venice Film Festival. This movie came out. On the horses, I will say. Oh, okay. No, uh, here's the little pickup, whatever. <laughs> no. I don't know what that is. It's the um, Venice Film. It's one. Okay, whatever. It's, <laughs> I will say, I, I like the character of Dix on paper, and I like the relationship that horses plays into like revealing things about him. Um, because you know, he, he's comes from a ranch in Kentucky and he's gotten into this trouble because he's paying on ponies. It's an interesting thing. However, Sterling Hayden, while physically appropriate for this character, I cannot take him seriously solely because of Dr. Strangelove. Haven't seen it. Oh, see, I just thought he was a, imagine his goofy voice. (laughs) Well, anyway, I think his voice is goofy. And it only works when he's saying stupid conspiracy theories. All right. We can talk about what this was nominated for, Sarah. Can you remind me? Us. Best director. Best actor in a supporting role for Sam Jaffe. Best adapted screenplay. And best cinematography, black and white. By default for me, I have to give it the cinematography. Because I don't think anything else was impressive. Cinematography, there were a couple of cool shots here and there. I like the shadows, obviously, with Noir. But I think also, like, how the shot... Um, there's a really cool camera movement in that standoff sequence, I remember. Where, like, he kind of moves behind a door and the camera follows him really quickly. Uh, I always think that's neat to see in these old movies. So, cinematography for me. I will also say cinematography. I thought it was... Okay. I like my boy Sam Jaffe, so I'm going to give him Best Actor. Well, what nomination are you going to add since you like the movie? Best Picture? No, no. So accusatory. Uh, saving that for Random Harvest. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the sound in this is, it, there's some overlaying sound at the beginning that does tie back into that propaganda scene with the uh, police scanners, but it is uh, an intentionality with sound design that we haven't seen quite yet um there is one very poorly adr'd line but besides that i think the sound is pretty solid in this and sounds always important in a heist movie because it helps build tension mine well okay imagine the year is 1950 imagine if year is 1950 and a young marilyn monroe gets nominated imagine how different the next 13 years of her life might have been if she had gotten this nomination so i will say best supporting actress for Miller Monroe. you know i like that argument because it always makes me think about this point i saw where and i'll just say this briefly imagine how different uh and it's not nearly as serious as Marilyn Monroe, but imagine how different Amy Adams' career would have been if she like won an Oscar for Enchanted. Like, just imagine how different that she was in conversation for. It. She won the Globe. She was nom. She might have been nominated at SAG. She was in the conversation for Enchanted. Why not just say like Junebug, which was what she was well, actually no, nominated because no, because the thing is, she won an Oscar for something fun. Imagine if she won the Oscar for something fun. How different her career would be. I mean, I think she would. I think her career would be pretty, pretty. I don't similar. think she'd work. I don't think she'd do American Hustle. I don't think she'd do Hillbilly mm-hmm. Elegy because she wouldn't be hunting for that Oscar. She wouldn't do Woman in the Window. Yeah, she wouldn't be hunting that Oscar so hard. 
Anyway, uh, I actually was going to go sound recording because I think the gunshots sound really good. That's basically it. I thought the sound mixing was good throughout, and the sound recording is pretty high quality. All right. The 24th Academy Awards with eight nominations and no wins. This is where I'd ask for a drum roll, but I think the lawnmower driving right by me will suffice for the We're watching Quo Vice. It is 174 minutes long. <laughs> Excuse me, 171 minutes long. I'll get to use my classics degree. It's true. It'll finally come into use for me. So, Sarah, are you excited to watch this 171-minute film from the director of a movie I'm pretty sure none of us liked? Random Harvest of Madame Curie. And and, uh, for Caleb, also he did Gold Diggers of 1933. Wonderful. Maybe Maybe Ned Sparks will show up. I don't know. Maybe Caleb will like it. If he's going to be, I mean, maybe Caleb will like it because Madame Curie was so boring with all the science that maybe this will be so overloaded with like history. That it'll be interesting to at least one of us. Uh, generally, I don't I like want another episode where I'm the only one who likes something. <laughs> well, I, I I'll give this one. I like old biblical ash epics, so we'll see how it goes. All right, I'm Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd at Blankments. You can also listen to my other two podcasts. Why is with Ty and Dan a Marvel podcast? And looking for the ocean. A Pixar Journey, a new podcast about a journey through Pixar. Find those wherever you find your podcasts. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Star Wars Therapy, Hot Trash Unlimited, and All New 52. The last of those two I do with our editor, Joe. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Joe. Sorry about the lawnmower. Um, and I'm Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y-29. You can find us on Facebook, the Snuff Club, Twitter, Snuff Club Pod, Instagram, Snuff Club Podcast. Is that everything? <laughs> yeah. We'll see you guys next time. With Whoa. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.